listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Well, the lectionary just refuses to let us get too cozy as we continue the movement through Advent toward Christmas. Last Sunday was those apocalyptic words of Jesus spoken near the end of his earthly life about signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, and on earth distress among the nations. The coming of the Son of Man, the challenge to be on guard, be alert, be awake. This week, we've backed up from that point late in his life to the point where he is just about to come into view as an adult. We're just about to see him meet John the Baptist in the wilderness and then begin his ministry. And we'll actually see some of that scene next Sunday when we meet John again. So this week, we get just this very brief introduction to him. The word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, He went into all the region round the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, that very brief introduction to John is bracketed by things that Luke very much wants his audience to notice. Firstly, Luke wants us to know that John and Jesus emerge in a very political world. So that's why all those names, right? It's in the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee. It was during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now all of those little details weren't included simply so that modern biblical critics could do the calculations examine Roman civil documents and try to pin down precise dates to include in their scholarly commentaries. No, Luke doesn't have a concern for all those later scholarly articles. He includes it to remind his audience about the shape of the world, the political world in which all of this gospel is unfolding. The emperor Tiberius, for instance, had styled himself a son of the divine Augustus. Herod ruled Galilee, though very much as a client state of the Roman Empire. The real force to be reckoned with day by day was Pontius Pilate, the senior civil servant who filled the role of governor of Judea and whose violence was so extreme that at one point he was summoned back to Rome to give an accounting for the harshness of his rule. Now that's something, because Rome ruled with a lot of violence, with an iron fist, and they thought Pilate had gone too far. So that's the one bracket. Secondly, For all that Luke needs us to know and see the politics that swirled all round, even more does he want us to know that the baptism which John proclaims is set against a much deeper and more significant context. 
as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is not coming out of nowhere, folks. That's what he's saying. This is what our greatest prophets sang so long ago in those poems that we've been pondering and treasuring and wondering at for centuries. This is now unfolding. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. All of that picture language of mountains and valleys being brought together, crooked, rough paths being made straight and level, maybe for us prairie folk, who very much like the idea of driving through the mountains and being awed by their splendor after that long hundreds of miles of flat, well, maybe for us, the image of mountains and hills being laid low isn't all that appealing. But for a people who knew what it was to trek through deserts, to climb those hills and mountains, to face the prospect of bandits every time you traveled outside of your village or town or city. These images were all pretty compelling. And who but the Lord could make that mountain and level it with that valley? Certainly Tiberius can't, Pilate can't, Herod can't, only the Lord God. We are going to bump into John the Baptist again next Sunday, as I said. So for tonight, just notice that he comes to proclaim what? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And why? Because as far as John is concerned, when the Lord comes, it might just feel like bad news before it feels like good news particularly for those whose lives are out of order. So, repent and signify it. Start again and signify it by coming into the river with me. Well, that concern that things be set right before the Lord comes among us also sits at the heart of the prophet Malachi's perspective. The brief little wee book of Malachi is the final book in the whole of the Old Testament. And in many ways, its message really anticipates all that John the Baptist will say. When Malachi was writing, the exiles have come back from their captivity in Babylon. They've been able to return home and to begin to rebuild. They've rebuilt the temple, in fact. But it would seem that this new temple is not the same as the old temple. It would seem that the glory of the Lord, which was so clearly felt and and, and seen to dwell in the temple of Solomon, wasn't yet fully there in this rebuilt temple. There's a real sense that the old rituals, all of the old practices aren't quite so trustworthy or sure as they'd been in days of old. 
So Malachi is actually addressing his words to the priests. He's challenging them in their lack of confidence that things aren't what they used to be. Their lack of reverence and their corruption. And through his little book, he points to the corruption of the priests. But Malachi won't just write off the temple. He won't just write off the priests in spite of their lack of faith and their corruption. Instead, he calls them and the whole of the nation back into righteousness. And here he sounds a lot like the Baptist. The Lord is coming. The glory will again fully inhabit the temple. And when that happens, he says, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Certainly not those Malachi calls the arrogant, the evildoers, who will be stubble, to be burnt up, leaving them neither root nor branch, gone. He's rather tough-edged, is our Malachi, though he is also convinced that for you who revere God's name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You will go out leaping like calves leaping from their stalls. So turn yourselves around so that you meet the sun of righteousness with healing in its wings and you respond with the joy of a little calf leaping out to the pasture. There's a lot of either-or language, either-or way of looking at things, both in Malachi and in the Baptist. either you repent and you get things in order or you're done for. Either you will leap like a calf or you'll burn like stubble. Makes it all the more interesting that tucked in the middle of his writings is this other image of fire. In this case, though, it's refining fire, not fire that burns up the stubble, but fire that actually refines or cleanses. For the Lord is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. The descendants of Levi. That's a very specific reference to those priests again, the ones he'd been critiquing earlier in his short writings. Their corruption, their lack of faith, their lack of confidence, that's what will burn away by fire, be scrubbed away like a, like a launderer bleaches with a bleaching soap. Those don't sound like the most comfortable of processes, of course, being burned into refinement or scrubbed clean with bleach. Then again, how often is it that growth and movement and even healing come with some real pain. No friction, no movement. In an Advent sermon preached in 1928, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing in Germany after the Nazis had begun their ascent, Bonhoeffer took note of how this season of Advent really should wake us from complacency. It is very remarkable, he wrote, 
that we face the thought that God is coming so calmly. We have become so accustomed to the idea of divine love and of God's coming at Christmas that we no longer feel the shiver of fear that God's coming should arouse in us. We are indifferent to the message, taking only the pleasant and agreeable out of it and forgetting the serious aspect that the God of the world draws near to the people of our little earth and lays claim to us. The coming of God is truly not only glad tidings, but first of all, frightening news for everyone who has a conscience. Not only glad tidings, but first of all, frightening news for every one of us who has a conscience. What a line, right? And then Bonhoeffer continues with an observation that actually pulls us beyond the either-or of Malachi and John the Baptist into the both-and that Jesus actually incarnated, that Jesus actually brought to us. Bonhoeffer writes, Only when we have felt the terror of the matter can we recognize the incomparable kindness. God comes into the very midst of evil and death and judges the evil in us and in the world. And by judging us, God cleanses and sanctifies us comes to us with grace and love. The incomparable kindness of God in the midst of us, even if that sometimes looks and feels like a cleansing and refining fire, even if it can sometimes hurt like hell because that fuller's soap is doing its work, incomparably kind and deeply merciful then, now, always, and in the culmination of all of time, all of creation, and all of history, which is the final horizon of our Advent hope, incomparably kind and deeply merciful. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.